literally it ended up with me on the floor of our factory sleeping uh, in my sleeping bag and sleeping pad in a, in a in the mother's room or nursing room uh, a couple times a week as I would just plant myself there trying to figure out what was wrong and then slowly start kind of changing and changing myself and changing my behavior and my attitude and then starting to try to gain trust again and get people thinking differently and retooling our systems and retooling our capabilities and our machines and and so you know it was you know again it, it was my fault you are listening to the really this podcast where leaders keep it real i'm your host kevin edwards and that moment in time was shared by the ceo of fireclay tile eric edelson who just wants to make sure that you all know there's nothing wrong with sleeping in the office. Or should I say nursing room? <laughs> See, Eric's story is, is something like it's something like out of a book, right? Like you hear these stories about the founders who built businesses in their basements, their garages, the CEO who asked mom and dad for money or a family friend to get a loan because they couldn't turn on the lights. And then you have... Eric Edelson, who had to go in at the end of the week to the factory and tell his workers, hey, I can't pay you this week. Will you take this six pack of beers? Will you maintain the vision? And will you help us grow? Please welcome everybody, the real Eric Edelson. Enjoy. It's episode in five, four. Three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Reelers Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the CEO of Fire Clay Tile, Eric Edelson. Eric, thanks for being with us today. Oh, this is a huge honor. A huge fan of this podcast. Thanks so much for bringing the energy and bringing this important subject of uh, mission-driven business uh, to the forefront. So great to be here. I'm really excited to have you on. We met at the Impact Awards Summit back in, I think it was May it was, and we had a nice conversation. You shared a, a book with me and I'd recommend it to everyone listening to. It's called The Obstacle is the Way. That book has helped myself and our team out with so many challenges and overcoming many obstacles and really just saying, hey, it's, it is the way. It's the way you got to pursue and perceive uh, many obstacles that come into your life. So I just want to appreciate for you for that. And I knew you'd be an interesting guest to have on the show because Fire Clay Tile is doing some interesting stuff right now. So I'm interested though. Tiles. Why do you like tiles? Yeah, uh, great question. And uh, but before I answer that, I just you know it's so funny. We met on in a Zoom conference uh, because of like a private chat, and and it's funny. I've been doing a lot of private chatting on Zoom in this you know new new uh, way of working, and I have made some incredible connections. So even in this distributed work, virtual work, there's just new ways to connect and. Um, I offered to give you that book. I've, I've gifted that book a lot. Ryan Holiday's Obstacle Way, and it's um, it's a uh, it, it's a great read. I highly suggest it. Uh, if I, I love gifting, if anyone would like a copy, hit me up on LinkedIn or send me a note, and I will gift it uh, to you as well. But getting back to your question on tile, you know, uh, my journey to Fireclay was a little different. I, I happened to meet the founder through a family friend. The business this was in two thousand eight. The business was in in a bit of distress. Uh, I started helping him. It, it probably had less to do with Tile. It had a lot more to do with with him. Uh, his name's Paul. Uh, it had a lot more to do with the, the manufacturing side. I actually geek out a lot on mass customization. Tile lends itself incredibly well to that. 
So um, because we're able to mass customize for any customer anywhere, there's just an incredible experience uh, that goes with it. So I'm probably the if 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 you meet our anyone from 150 person team, I, I'm probably the one who's the the least uh, strong with our product and tile and uh, and even design. But I love our customers. I love our customer experience. I love the medium with which um, we're able to to be creative. And so tile and, and ceramics and artisan tile lend itself incredibly well to that. Uh, so so anyway, we got to dive more into it. But that's that's how I got to tile. That's why I love tile. Well, I was curious because it's you know when you retile just on 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 your on the title, you say it's not the most sexy thing out there, but then you actually take a closer look and you're like, you know, tiles have been around since the dawn of time, and they, I mean, twenty five thousand years ago, they've been around. Everyone's seen them now. Why do you think tiles are so special, and why do you think people like them? Yeah, tile tile is incredibly sexy. Uh, someone once told me that the second oldest profession after prostitution was ceramics. If you think going like way back to, you know, uh, uh, you know, many, many centuries ago. Um, so clay, you know, we as we as children play with the dirt uh, in art class. We, you know, we actually play with clay. And, you know, you think about um, like my kids play with clay in school. And so everyone's had this experience with clay, the ability to kind of like take your hands and actually form something and sculpt something um, and color it and put it into a kiln and have these different colors and effects come out and transform it everyone's had that experience and you'd be, uh, I'm constantly amazed how many people I meet who have a hobby in ceramics. And, and then when you think about your, your home or your business or your corporate office or hotel, tile actually ends up being like one of the core design features that you have control over. Um, and, and there's so much color and pattern at play that you're actually able to express yourself. So it actually ends up being incredibly sexy, incredibly appealing. Um, the colors with which we're able to create the sizes, patterns, you know, every project is different. Every project is unique. We always say our story starts with yours. So there, there is a lot of appeal. Um, and, and in this environment today where we're so digitally enabled, everything is about photography. Tile just lends itself incredibly well to that visual, um, um, you know, sensation that everyone wants. I mean, there is a, there is a, a phrase of tile porn out there that exists and, um, and people really get excited about it. So, so we enjoy that and we love celebrating that. There's something satisfying about watching your Instagram page and seeing someone pour that paste that just fits perfectly onto a towel. It's just something about it. It just is, is really nice and really soothing. Now, you also mentioned, Eric, that you may not be the most tile passionate person, maybe more of the business minds of the organization. So when you met Paul Burns, uh, the the last founder. What was the company like at that point in time? Yeah, so uh, Paul's an incredible ceramicist. We 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 love sharing his story. Um, his story goes back to he started Fireclay in 1986 in San Jose, California. But the story really goes back to the 1950s and the, the 1920s. His uncle Chester bought a, a fledgling tile factory in 1950 in San Jose, uh, which he ran for you know roughly 35 years called Stonelight Tile and. And Paul, as a young child, actually him and his mom moved in with his uncle. And so he, at age 12, started working in the kilns and at the factory. And, and so it's really like in his blood. He started Fireclay in 1986 with a few friends from, from Fireclay. And, and um, Fireclay was best described you know, during that 1986 to 2009 timeframe as, I'd say, a small artisan ceramic studio, um, maybe 30, 40 people at its height, a couple million dollars in revenue. Uh, Paul was really the, the leader, did it like typical entrepreneur, small business owner did everything. 
um, you know, balance the checkbook in his head, um, you know, so, but, you know, classic, classic RCU in terms of not many systems, beautiful product, but, um, you know, somewhat disorganized, um, you know, Paul's so creative that he was always thinking about the next product and not as much on, you know, selling the product he just launched and getting into the customer's hands or pricing or marketing. And so, you know, in 2008, when I met him, you know, the company was, you know, meanwhile, this is the, the start of the, you know, recession. Uh, we're in the building industry. So, you know, the company had actually enjoyed quite a bit of growth earlier. And all of a sudden now, you know, in declining, in a declining environment was, was really challenged. So, um, so honestly, the company was in, was in distress. Um, uh, uh, Paul was writing paychecks out of his wife's bank account. Um, he had an accountant bookkeeper who turned out to be embezzling from the company. So it was not pretty. And, and, you know, I would say it was, you know, not, not too many weeks away from, from, you know, a really, a really difficult decision. And so I just started helping him. Honestly, it was, uh, I had, I had just gotten my MBA about a year ago, uh, and I didn't really take into, you know, I'd say a typical job, didn't, didn't want to find that kind of corporate work and, um, was looking for my own thing or really to support someone else. So there was just this opportunity. Paul needed help. I, I didn't, I wasn't expensive. I was basically willing to work for free for equity. And, you know, we just, we got along great. I was able to really, um, take Fireclay as almost this, you know, science business experiment, my like Petri dish where I could experiment and play. Paul was really strong on the ceramics. And so we had really complementary skill sets. And, um, uh, and so that's, that's really what kind of kickstarted the, the, the relationship. And that was, that was the state of affairs. My first year here, we did uh, just about a million and a half dollars in sales. Uh, we were about 20 people, you know, had probably, you know, a couple thousand dollars in the bank at any given time. Making payroll was literally, you know, hoping a check came in the door that we could deposit. And I would say every other payroll period, Paul and I wouldn't get paid. That was just the reality of it. Uh, August of 2009, we literally didn't pay payroll to the company. I remember taking a six pack of beer out to the, to the back room where we had a bunch of team members and just saying, I'm sorry, we have no money. Um, but this was 2009, you know, Fireclay was, or California was furloughing jobs. Um, you know, the, the, this was just, you know, so, so we had a, uh, an environment where that wasn't the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing was losing jobs. So we got through it though. And you know, the rest is history. So when you came in, you said it was like a petri dish. Did you have a, a, a specific method you were doing to grow the company? What was the approach really when you came into the organization and, uh, we're trying to, you know, step up and lead? Yeah. So I, I had never, um, I had never been in a turnaround situation before my, my background was really on finance and, and venture capital. So, you know, looking back, I probably acted a little too slow in certain situations. And then, and then secondly, it was just a really small company with, um, with that wasn't profitable with very little revenue. So there was just really, there just really wasn't a lot of money to, to do things. So, um, we had a, you know, I definitely wrote like a business plan and had a you know step by step process. I say it came down to a couple things. First and foremost was tools. So we we went really long on the Salesforce platform and needed a, a scalable way to grow our company. I say two was creating a more like digitally forward, it's just like web experience and just uh, making it feel like we were bigger than we were uh, and kind of just projecting you know, an air of confidence. And then I would say at the time it was just really rebuilding relationships. So, you know, that was both internally with our team and then externally at the time we were a wholesale manufacturer. So we sold to tile stores around the country. So it was really like trying to just engender goodwill. There was years of damaged relationships. So trying to build those relationships back up, um, 
gain trust, confidence, um, make sure that we were marketing and selling to them correctly. Um, so that was really, you know, the playbook for the first few years, just to get the business stabilized um, to to a place where we could maybe be more creative. Eric, you mentioned that it's it's clay. It comes from the ground. Uh, it's an environmental resource. Now, you, fire clay tile is the first tile certified B corporation as well as your carbon neutral company. Were those values always in the organization? And when did this focus of uh, sustainability, of impact, of stakeholder capitalism come to fruition? Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, at the time, Paul was very inventive with regard to materials. So we used a lot of crazy recycled content. Um, we had like uh, recycled glass in our tile. We were trying to put uh, uh, crushed toilets in our tile. That we um, actually bought a, a fledgling glass tile company and we're using recycled glass from the solar industry. So we were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but I would also say Fireclay and Paul were typical of a lot of small businesses or, or entrepreneurs or founders that I've met where you have a person who's eager to do the right thing and has the right intention and mentality, but is not able to take the steps and, and put the put the frameworks in place and, and start just like doing the work. So they might say, yeah, I, I, you know, I want to share upside with employees or I want better benefits, but, but the next level of like getting it done is just not there. They're so focused on their craft or their customers. And so I was able to really kind of bring that forward to Fireclay. So um, I would say we actually, I mean, I, I heard about the B Corp model in 2008 when I met uh, one of the founders of B-Lab. And then, sorry, one second. Um, we first took the assessment in 2011 and failed royally. I mean, like total failure, just like thinking we were doing the right thinking. Here we are, we've got maybe 30, 40 employees at the time. We give them healthcare and we were just way off. So it actually took us another four years until 2015 for us to be able to make the investments and put in place the corporate governance, the benefits, all the other things that really kind of uh, become really important when you're thinking about a stakeholder mentality or becoming a B Corp. So, so that was a very intentional thing that, um, that we did over a number of years. Eric, what is stakeholder capitalism to you? I mean, I, I think that B, B Lab and B Corp, they, you know, I, I, I will just, you know, try to quote what they do. I mean, I think it's, I think it's really this, you know, getting away from the shareholder capitalism of we are here to make money for our investors and migrating more to a focus on, yes, shareholders, but importantly, employees, your environment, your community, your customers, um, and, and that much more holistic sense of, you know, everyone winning together. And, and not just, you know, saying that, but also taking the steps in the same way that, you know, for shareholders, you do your financial accounting and you have your cap table and ownership and distributions or whatever it might be, you know, for all those other stakeholders, you're measuring your environmental impact, you're doing the work to understand your carbon impact and, and taking steps to, to mitigate that. You're really focusing on benefits and going deep and thinking not just about healthcare, but, but broadly across people and families and children. Uh, it's thinking about your customers and, and how can I be a better steward for our customers or support our vendors better. And then making sure that you have the corporate governance in place that you have checks and balances. So, you know, I can't go rogue or a company can't go rogue. And whether that's an advisory board, a board of directors, compensation committee, whatever those things are, it's really making sure that you have those audits in place. So I, I think it's really a, a it's, it's the form of capitalism that's going to allow us to get, you know, the next 20, 30, 15 years without, without total implosion. Um, it's the form that's going to help um, bring back, you know, wealth equality 
to a more normalized place. Uh, it's going to be the thing that I think gets our environment in a place that allows my children to grow up with clean water and fresh air. Um, it's certainly a thing that you know gets me out of bed every morning. So maybe let's walk through a few examples of uh, the supply chain, the value chain. Uh, where have you added value? And I know a lot of people maybe listening to this for the first time say, "Well, Eric, you're spending a lot of money. That's a lot, of, you know, coming in from your EBITDA. You know, you're, you're taking a loss on this. How do you view these investments?" And uh, maybe explain to our audience a few examples uh, throughout the value chain. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's so many. Um, so, you know, I think we, I think let's take benefits. So, you know, we, we talk so much about healthcare and we talk so much about the rising cost of healthcare. And it, it is, it is crazy. I mean, we spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in, um, but there are so many other incremental benefits that can really help for much less money. So I think a lot of people get, focused on, you know, the, the total dollars of like, of, of whatever benefits. But when you start to think about these as ratios, so for example, maybe you spend a hundred thousand dollars on your healthcare and for $2,000, you could have life insurance. And for another $3,000, you could have long and short-term disability insurance. Yes. In total, $5,000 sounds a lot, but when you compare that as a ratio against your total payroll or your total headcount uh, or, or revenue, um, that that percentage may all of a sudden feel a lot smaller and a lot more manageable. And so I think you have to think differently about these things and not just think about total dollars or just not get so scared about, you know, healthcare or just the cost broadly. So so I think a lot of times you have these big wins with with a little bit of effort that costs much less than you think they do. Um, on the supply chain, you know, I think carbon's a great one. Um, so, you know, we've been offsetting our carbon uh, emissions for years. Uh, through Carbon Fund, and and I'll admit it's not the easiest thing to do. Like I run all kinds of reports, I have to, you know, and it's not perfect. You make assumptions, but but by looking at it, I can tell you I get so much closer to the data about our shipments, for example, or the location of our vendors. That I'm now asking questions of our team. Hey, why are we bringing material in from this location? Like that's just really far. And maybe we find a supplier that's more local that all of a sudden is actually more cost effective. Um, or maybe all of a sudden I'm looking at shipments and I'm going, God, we're like our carbon impact for, you know, air freight is really high. Like maybe we can ship to more, you know, via ground more or something like that. So I find that like a lot of times the cost um, benefit comes back. A great one is, is waste. Um, we've been really focused on waste diversion and, um, we have a team member, uh, David on our team who, you know, I tapped, he's our environment, he's our environmental health and safety specialist. And he's really more of a compliance person, but I tapped him last year to say, Hey, I think, I think I'd love you to just explore this a bit more. And he and his group um, really started like looking at waste. We went from having, you know, two huge of these like debris boxes that are on site that we would fill every week and take out to, we have like one now that's basically a quarter version and our business is much bigger. And so, you know, what have we done? Well, we focused more on recycling. We focused more on working with our vendors to change the packaging that they send products to. Um, it saved us money. Um, it has helped us to be more of a vendor advocate by sharing feedback with vendors and asking how can we collaborate more and maybe moving from you know 50 pound bags to big super sacks or recycling super sacks. And so, like again, things like that that you know seemed very daunting and you know you think are expensive all of a sudden become really collaborative and actually like much more freeing for us because we're more thoughtful about it. So, so I think in, in, there are so many different places where those kinds of wins exist as you start to ask questions. And I think turning to your supply chain and simply like, I mean, it sounds so silly, but 
picking up the phone and having a conversation with them and saying, Hey, we have a goal of being zero waste. What can we do about it? I mean, it's shocking. Just like basic stuff that we heard from vendors on what they do or capabilities that they had that we had never understood came to light. So, you know, I think a lot of these things are, are much easier than we think they are. It just involves, you know, someone who's excited about it and a team rallying around it, a leader being focused and supportive of it and talking to the community to learn and understand and ask questions. Now, Eric, who are some of your customers, uh, whether they're large businesses, contractors, direct, and someone just trying to work on a place at home? Who are they? And have you found that they're going with fire clay tile because of this commitment to being, you know, a regenerative uh, organization? So uh, I, I always like to say we make the world's most beautiful tile and, and people choose fire clay because of how awesome our product is. Uh, and so I think first and foremost, they're looking at the beauty of the product and is it in my budget or how do I find a solution that's within my budget? Right. So we got to win on those two levels and then all the fun stuff comes to happen. Um, I was on a call yesterday with a, a really innovative company in our space called Material Bank and they shared a stat that you know 90% of specifiers, which is architects and designers, are demanding products with a sustainability message. And, and we know this from consumers. You can look at any survey of millennials and, and um, you know, even older folks, people want companies and they want to support brands that are have a sustainability mission, are um, focused on transparency, sharing that message. So you know, we believe firmly in that. Um, but at the same time, we have to win on the product. We have to be beautiful. We have to be cost effective. We have to be, you know, delivering product in a reasonable time frame. Uh, so you know, I'd say our the message around sustainability resonates. Uh, it's something that is a differentiator for us. We're the we're the first and only B Corp in Tile. Uh, we're um, you know there are people who are focused on product certifications, but like we're the only one certifying at a company level. Um, we're focused on a holistic carbon offset, whereas a lot of other people might be a product offset or maybe a shipping offset. Where we're holistic scope one, two, and three full company offset of carbon. And so I think that message, you know, we're trying to communicate that in a customer friendly way. Um, and I think it resonates, you know, going back to your, your question, our customers are literally everyone, which is like the coolest part. I mean, literally I was texting with one of my best friends from college today who just bought her first house. And she's like, Eric, I need some tile. And like the joy that I get to be able to like make tile for her in her home is so cool. When I got to this business in 2009, none of my friends had homes. Like we were young, we were in our late twenties. No one had homes. They all now are buying homes or thinking about homes. And so the number of friends just I personally have been able to touch with this product is awesome. So that's one. I'd say second, you know, we just get to work with incredible brands. And so we supply tile for amazing brands like Starbucks and Sweetgreens and Google and Whole Foods. And I mean, you can find our product in most technology offices across the company. One of the coolest projects we did was Salesforce. I told you in 2009, we went long on the Salesforce platform. Uh, I am a Salesforce fanatic. I drink the Kool-Aid. I think Mark Benioff is like one of the greatest leaders of all time. Uh, we now have our tile in all of their offices globally in this really cool custom mural that Mark chose along with this incredible Japanese artist. And to be able to deliver that in a custom solution for a brand like that and a leader like that is awesome. Uh, we just did a project for LaGuardia Airport. It was um, one of the world's largest murals of all time. We did it in partnership with a world-renowned artist, Laura Owens, in collaboration with LaGuardia Airport and um, the New York Public Art Fund. And this is like epic. It's LaGuardia's new terminal. It is one of the coolest projects you will ever see of public art. Um, 
And we were able to deliver that. And then, you know, thousands and thousands of homeowners. So the size, scale, diversity, going back to that idea of mass customization that I talked about, that we're able to um, create and deliver product real time. All of this is made to order. So we don't have stock, like we make everything to order. We have incredible systems and solutions to make that happen. Um, but that you can go in and pick your color and pick your size and do it for all quantities, whether it's a fireplace or a backsplash or an entire hotel. That is that is our promise. And that's just so cool that we're able to do that for all those incredible customers. It's it's really cool artwork. I mean, I've been on the website, I've seen the Salesforce, uh, Salesforce art. And that's why I wanted to ask you about this mass customization. It seems like you've cut out the middleman here. You're no longer, you don't need someone else to bring you orders and things like that. Now you've gone direct to consumer. What were some of the constraints that you ran into along the way? And how did you face those constraints and innovate around them? Yeah. So, I mean, going back to the the story, I, I told you a little bit about how we were a wholesale manufacturer and we turned that business around. So by 2012, you know, we were on a couple million bucks in revenue. Uh, I think I was still paying myself, you know, a very meager salary. My wife, we just had our first kid. My wife was definitely pressuring me going like, what's, what's going on? When's this tile thing going to work? And, um, you know, and Kevin, I'll be honest, I was super depressed. Uh, I was, I was very sad. I, I was doing everything. I, um, and, and I just didn't know what this was going to be. And I ended up uh, talking to another another company that I admired. I, I stalked the CEO, made up email addresses, trying to find this guy's name, and eventually got on the phone with him and uh, had, had an interesting conversation. And basically, February 16th, 2013, I, I had, if you remember that movie, Jerry Maguire, it starts with Jerry having this manifesto epiphany moment in the middle of the night. I did that. I literally woke up at five, four in the morning, got to my computer, wrote this three-page manifesto about how we were going to go direct, how we were never going to win in wholesale, how we needed to create a brand and take control of sales and marketing and all of that. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, we had raised about $800,000. We ended up raising about $2 million from friends and family that year. And February, sorry, January 6, 2014, we relaunched our business. We literally fired all of those wholesale customers and said, we're going a different direction. We, we realized we would never win in wholesale, that we were just never going to penetrate that market. There was too much competition. There were too many products. There was too much misinformation. We needed to control our own destiny. And so we relaunched this business with this idea of being vertically integrated, customer first, whether it was a commercial or residential client, we were going to satisfy you. And um, and so we've taken the business from you know what was about, uh, I'd say, two and a half million in sales to uh, over 20. And we've done it without raising a ton of money. We just raised about $3 million. But we've always had the customer first and foremost. And so uh, the challenges in doing that have been all over the place. I mean, one cash... We have to build a brand. We have to build a factory, manufacturing, build a sales organization. All these things that cost a ton of money. Uh, I like to joke: we've run this business with like a hundred thousand dollars in the bank for ten years. Now we have more today because we developed a really nice business model. But you know, it was a lot of you know just scrappy work. You know, a lot of dark days of almost running out of money and um, not being able to get out of bed because you know the factory was behind and we just couldn't make tile. We had problems. You know. Just getting it right where the brand was growing and production was growing. Uh, we have complicated sales cycles. We have distributed customers where you might have a designer specify it, but then a homeowner purchase it. Um, some sales are three-year sales cycles. Uh, some orders are a couple hundred dollars. Some orders are hundreds of thousands of dollars. So there's such diversity across so many different dimensions that the complexity that you know hurt us at different times. We didn't either have the systems or the machines or the people. 
Uh, so, so all of those different steps have been learning opportunities for us to get better. As, as we talked about the obstacles away, all those obstacles have become opportunities to get better and to learn. And so we've created this culture. We call it our ganas culture. Uh, it's a Spanish word for desire and heart and will. And so we have this culture of ganas of just like, we will figure it out. Like there is just not a problem that comes through these doors that we don't kind of like run right head on into and figure out how to get better at it. So so all of those challenges, and, and there's been a lot of dark days, you know, have created opportunities. And, and here we are 11 years later, and it's feeling like, uh, you know, the brand is getting tremendous recognition and, and we're having success. But at the same time, that Jeff Bezos, Amazon, you know, day one model still exists here where it feels like every day is a new day. And, and I want to touch now a little bit more, you know, like, you know, you said you were depressed. Like, what did what was going on in your life at that time? What were people telling you? And then after you came through that through that tunnel, you know, what did you learn about yourself and your company? Yeah, uh, this was um, yeah. My my lowest moment in life was was the fall of two thousand seventeen. My my wife and I were were having a tough time. We had, we had two kids and. My wife's an incredible business leader. She's a total badass. I'm so fortunate to be a partner with her. Um, but we just weren't getting along, and we were we were talking to um, we were getting help, and then we just had a team in disarray. You know, I had a team member who who we love sit me down and just say, "I think I'm going to go somewhere else." And fortunately, we were able to keep him. He's now our plan manager. But um, we we, uh, we were broke. Um, just had leaders that weren't in the right people, that weren't the right places. And I was just doing it, you know, honestly, it was all my fault. I was doing a horrible job as a leader. Um, I had too many different initiatives. I was not holding people accountable where they were making mistakes. Um, and, and we had just some, we had like a plant fire that was small and our systems just kind of broke. And so, you know, literally it ended up with me on the floor of our factory sleeping, uh, in my sleeping bag and sleeping pad in a, in a, in the mother's room or nursing room, uh, a couple times a week as I would just plant myself there trying to figure out what was wrong and then slowly start kind of changing and changing myself and changing my behavior and my attitude and then starting to try to gain trust again and get people thinking differently and retooling our systems and retooling our capabilities and our machines. And, and so, you know, it was, you know, again, it, it was my fault. I had to change myself. I had to fix myself. Um, and, you know, we were able to get through it. And I was just fortunate. There were a number of people who, you know, fortunate to still have on the team who, who you know, partnered with me and partnered with us to get through it. Um, my wife and I, you know, got through it and, and uh, things are good. Um, so I think it's, you know, having great people around it. But, you know, it was really me, like, owning it and, like, doing the hard personal work and taking responsibility. Um, that, was, that was the most important thing for me getting through that. Eric, you said that you dropped off a six pack of beer when you couldn't uh, pay your your employees. Now you're giving them a nice employee ownership plan. Explain to our audience the big yeah. news today and what's going on like on with that and why you decided uh, to give your employees more more ownership in the company. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so cool, Kevin. This is a huge day for us. We are we're going public with this announcement that we have uh, massively expanded our employee ownership. So. As I told you at the beginning, I'm, I work for Sweat Equity, and I think equity is is a huge driver of financial success. We we see it in the news, you know, all the big tech companies, etc. And 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 so I've I've seen that firsthand with just my friends and peers. And 
I've always wanted to, that was always something I cared about. And so we first introduced employee ownership in 2013 with a stock option plan when we raised capital from, from some investors. Uh, we increased that ownership in 2015. And so going into this year, we had about 15% employee ownership. Um, uh, the founder that I mentioned, Paul, uh, over the last few years, it, it became apparent that, um, you know, there was, a, there was just a transition happening. And Paul served this company incredibly well. Uh, and at the same time, we had a new crop of leaders and visionaries who were taking the company forward. Uh, so we were able to work out a great outcome for Paul and his family to really recognize and reward his 35 years of service to Fireclay. Um, and and so in exchange for repurchasing his ownership and actually our factory that, that he and his wife own, um, we've now basically redistributed almost all of that ownership to our team through a new 23% employee option pool. So. Our team over the next few years is going to have the opportunity to own as much as 38% of this company. Uh, as I said, we now own our factory, which is so cool. So we like to say now when our team goes to work, they're actually going to work in a factory that they're a part owner in. Uh, and, you know, we, we really, I've, I've never like hid the fact that, you know, we, we are, we want to sell this company one day. We want to find a buyer. I raised capital from investors. They've been super patient. We're so fortunate to have great investors who trust us and have been patient with us and understood us and uh and are supportive of this so much uh going back to that stakeholder capitalism by being a b corp they've been bought into this for a while now and and have come to accept it and understand this is part of our culture so so we want to grow this company and and you know it's not it's it's that we want to sell to someone who has the financial resources to help us go even further uh so so that's a while out but until that time I want to work really hard to keep making sure that, you know, when that day comes, that the people who help build the value, the team coming to work every single day, you know, have an outsized opportunity at financial success. So, so yeah, today's really exciting. We made these cool t-shirts. Hey, there you go. They proudly uh, employee owned. We've gone certified with this great new certification called um, certified employee, employee owned. And uh, yeah, we're, we're super thrilled. So we had a big party on, on Zoom, of course, on Friday to share the news. And, uh, and we're sharing it now, mostly because we, we always hope to inspire others. You know, I've, I've always been inspired by brands like Patagonia and Cliff Bar, who you know, I think are visionaries. You've had a lot of incredible leaders on, on your podcast and um, uh, like you know, traditional medicinals and, and uh, seventh generation and others. And, and like, you know, I, I want Fire to Clay to be you know, thought of in that same way. I want us to, in, in our way, in our spirit, uh, especially starting at an earlier stage, I want people to see that, you know, you can offer your team great fair pay. You can do great benefits. You can think about employee ownership. You don't have to be a multi-hundred million dollar company. You can do it in the earliest stages. You can do it before all that wealth is created in in the growth phase rather than at the end. So, you know, I hope that we're an inspiration to others. I hope that, you know, we can make news like this available so that others can learn and get curious and start thinking about how it might apply to their organization. Well, Eric, you definitely fit the mold, whether it's Patagonia innovating around an organic supply chain, you're doing the same thing. And so you're creating impact in your own way. And I think that's really inspiring to everyone listening out here. Now, for business owners specifically, why is this move a good idea? Why is this uh, when, when someone leaves the company, uh, is there other tax advantages? You said you were already doing this. I know you 8x the revenue the first time. Why is this a good move? And why do you believe people uh, want to have ownership in their own company? Yeah, well, the, the, 
I'll be honest, the tax, the tax, there are no tax advantages in the sense that uh, all the tax advantages are for the funds and the fund managers and the professional investors and like those people. They're not, they're not for incentivizing employees with ownership. Um, you mentioned kind of like, you know, there are certain things if you had a, uh, what is like an ESOP or the more traditional model where from a retirement perspective, but that's a ways off for a lot of our team. So ours is, ours is more akin to what you find from technology companies or startups. It's a stock option plan. So, um, you know, the, the tax advantages really only come if people choose to exercise their options early. Um, but, but a lot of this ends up, you know, frankly, if, if we do are fortunate enough to have some kind of exit event, it ends up being almost treated like income. So sadly, there should be better tools and there should be better systems and methodologies to create employee ownership. It is way too complicated to do it, I'll be frank. Um, but I think what, to answer your question, it really is more about the, the symbolic. I, I think so many times for the reasons I just mentioned, oh, it's complicated, it's not the right tax thing. Um, are people really gonna value it? We're not gonna educate, they won't appreciate it. Those are all the like things we just keep hearing time and time again as excuses. And I think that this the doing it and putting it in place and saying this is yours has meaning. I think it's important. Yes, like we could have chosen to just you know um, do a founder buyout and retire all those shares, and everyone who has the ownership they just see their ownership increase. Sure, I mean that's the standard approach. That's what a lot of corporations do with stock buybacks. Um, that's but that's not what we think is the right thing. We think the right thing is you know sharing with employees, making sure that they have opportunity. Is it a win-win-win all the time? No, there have been plenty of employees who you know, have disappointed us or you know done things that aren't owner-oriented. But at the same time, I'm a firm believer that people have good intentions, that all people deserve opportunity. And you know, I, I think it's my job as a CEO, one of my responsibilities is to think for our team and to be out in front of things. And whether that's a strategy or a benefit or a financial opportunity, you know, if I can be out in front of it and create these opportunities in ways that they might not understand or have the privilege of knowing about um, that that's me doing my one of the parts of my job. Now, Eric, you mentioned like systems change, like what incentives would you like to see from a business owner's perspective that you would think would bring more leaders to the forefront to be in front of their own companies to uh, provide employee ownership to think about their materials in a recyclable, renewable way? Um, what systems change or incentives would you like to see? Yeah, I mean, so tools, you know, I mean, think about how many tools there are for CRM and acquiring customers and measuring your customer acquisition costs. I mean, just thinking about how many marketing tools there are. I mean, like there's like two tools to manage employee ownership. We use one of them called Carta and it's too expensive, you know, so more tools to make this easier to just manage the, the stuff around employee ownership. I think to the legal front, you know, the legal challenges are complex. Um, lawyers are expensive. They are very conservative. They, any, you know, the reality is any benefit you give opens you up for lawsuits and compliance issues. And so the very nature of handing someone ownership means there's now another reason for someone to sue you. And so, you know, there's, there's all these legal reasons not to do this. So, you know, simplifying the legal, creating more simplified legal structures to allow for ownership. You know, there's, you think how many companies are, I mean, there's like a handful of organizations, um, business schools that like preach this and talk about it. Not very many, not at all compared to the number of companies talking about like winning customers, growing sales, like raising capital, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so, so we just need more like academic interests. Um, around this. Uh, organizations like Certified Employee Owned, I think, are, are great steps in that way. 
Um, uh, and then, you know, I think, I think entrepreneurs, owners, I think they just need to think differently. There, there's, there's a little bit of the old school and new school mentality. And the old school mentality is I'm an owner, you're an employee. And that's like, I've had that conversation a hundred times. The new school mentality, which I think, you know, this is one of the beauties of Silicon Valley. And, and you know, I give credit to California and, and a lot of the great companies out here. You see what happens when you give employees a skin in the game. Incredible innovation, incredible wealth creation. And so that same philosophy should absolutely be applied to more private enterprises outside of technology. Um, we need to create a much more of an ownership culture for our team so that when they come to work, they're vested, they're motivated, they're bringing their full self. And I think you know ownership is a, is a key part of that um, and that opportunity. So I think you just need to change the mindset for that old school versus new school and get more leaders and entrepreneurs thinking about this and just asking the questions. Because the reality is, it's not nearly as hard as raising capital. It's not nearly as hard as acquiring customers. It's not nearly as hard as making whatever it is that you make or selling whatever it is that you sell. You just got to do it and spend some time on it and you'll figure it out. So what are some of the conversations like you have? I'm interested because I like to have these conversations with people all the time. And they're some of the times friendly, sometimes they're not. But like, what do you what do you tell someone who's like just trying to figure this out, who is a business owner, who just can't really see the way you see things? Like, what do you tell them? That it's not going to be perfect. You're going to make mistakes, but you got to try. You might not. We started with ten percent, and look where we are today. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a hundred percent. So I, I think that, you know, it's incremental stepwise improvement. It's it's 1% every day, right? Think about that improvement over the course of the year. I, I think it doesn't have to be this huge, big thing all of a sudden. It, it just, you know, little bits, incremental gestures, trying it, putting your foot in the water, seeing what it feels like, that gets you going. So I, like, I, I think you just got to try it. Maybe it's just with your leadership team. Maybe it's with a few others. Like maybe you're calling your attorney and asking them about it. Maybe you're asking your friends. Maybe you're sending me an email. I, I think, you know, there's a couple books out there to read. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's a couple of those things to just start learning, but I think you're going to make mistakes. You're going to, it's not going to be as perfect as you want. You're going to end up giving parts of your company to people who you regret it, but, but the broad mentality will be right. And over time, hopefully it works out for you and for those team members who, who really helped build the wealth that you're going to benefit from. So what is leadership's role in this then? I mean, you've been mentioning it throughout this entire podcast, kind of how you lead, kind of how you see uh, the importance of your board and leadership and acquiring more leaders on staff. Like what is really leadership's role in this fundamental change uh, to improving or increasing a majority of a stakeholder capitalist society? Yeah, I mean, I very much preach the idea of, of servant leadership and, and a little bit of the uh, leaders eat last mentality. Uh, that I think was was the title of one of Simon Sinek's books, and and so I think it's it's about the people, it's about the customers, it's about the vendors, it's about all of your constituents, and I think environment and community are very much a part of that. So, so you know, I'm here to serve. I'm here to to you know eat last, and I, I literally always eat last at whatever event that we have um, because it's it's really for everyone else. And and my personal happiness is not going to be driven by how much money I have in the bank. My personal happiness is going to be driven by. You know, am I eating well? Am I sleeping well? Am I getting some exercise? Am I around people who I love? And am I building great relationships? You know, that's that's going to be happiness. And so, you know, it's it's not going to be how much money. It's going to be did I impact other people's lives? Did I change organizations? Did I change people? Did I change this world? And so, you know, leadership to me is all about you know being a servant, 
to all of those others and making sure that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about myself last and I'm putting myself in everyone else's shoes and hoping that they are set up for success. Eric, did they teach you that in business school? What you just described? Well, so the motto, so, so like, yes and no, I would say more, more than no. I mean, so Stanford's motto is change lives, change organizations, change the world. And yeah, I don't know. It's corny, but I really, I'm always like, I think about it all the time. And, uh, and so, you know, during my time at Fireclay, you know, I personally feel like I've had an impact in terms of changing lives and certainly changing organizations. And so now it's like this change the world. And, and so how can we be, uh, how can this amazing group of 150 people and, uh, and our board, you know, impact other people and how can we be a role model and set an example to inspire others to have more, more positive impact. You mentioned community a while ago. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that? How is Fireclay investing in the community and how are you reaping the benefits of that? It's kind of interesting because uh, organizations yeah. do and it's kind of blurred lines. Yeah. So I, again, I, I, I'll answer a few ways. Um, one, you know, I think you got to be transparent about this. So we're pledge 1% members. So we pledge 1% of ownership and 1% of products. So we, we give 1% of uh, so if we if we sold a million square feet last year, we'll give ten thousand square feet to those in need. So so you know we put we make this transparent. We have a few different give back programs. Um, uh, if if we had more time, I would tell you about how much I despise credit card merchant fees. And so if you actually like check out at our at our website or or if you buy tile from us, we incentivize you to pay with e check, and then we actually um, have this program where you give some money into an employee fund and you get a refund uh, to to. Save uh, save the the really high expense from credit card merchant fees, but that's that's another topic altogether. So I, I think you know as as really as a community, you know you got to pick your pick your choices. So uh, Mark Benioff, founder uh, you know founder of Salesforce, a couple of years ago at Dreamforce, their user conference, he challenged everyone to go and adopt a public school locally. And you know he said there's you know two hundred thousand public schools in the U.S. If every business here in this room, listening to this this talk, went and adopted a public school. Just imagine the impact we had. So we actually had this public school down the street from us, half mile down the street, an elementary school called the Aroma School. And you know, we I, I literally did that. I walked in and met the principal, and I said, Heather, we want to. What can we do to support you? And so we we give financial resources. This year, we you know spent a couple thousand dollars, and we literally handed out art supplies to all 380 children um, because this is a, this is a this is a um, this is a community that's that's not uh, as financially um, stable, and so you know crayons and markers. I mean, not not things that everyone has. So so we created art bags, very much on brand for Fireclay. Um, but I think you know things like that. We're actually just just this month, along with our employee ownership, uh, we're introducing a new hardship relief fund in partnership with a group called Philanthropy, which we're excited about. And then um, we're starting to do charitable matching for our team. Uh, so not that much, just up to two hundred fifty dollars a person. But if people want to give back to organizations that they believe in, we'll match it. And again, you know, it's two hundred fifty dollars. Some might think that that's a lot of money. Some might think that's not a lot of money. It's what we could afford. Maybe next year it's four hundred dollars. But it's a start, and it helps give at least our team a mentality that, like, hey, if I give, I'll be able to amplify my impact. So, so I think community is, you know, it's got to be really clear and transparent. Fireclay can't just say, you know, we support, you know, X Y Z organization. We have to be transparent around we've pledged 1% or this is how this program works, or these are the organizations we're supporting and this is the money that we're paying. And so I think that transparency really matters. And I think us being accountable to like these kinds of systems ensures that we keep that up. 
Eric, we've talked about the stakeholders today, the customers, the suppliers, the distributors, uh, the the investors that are aligned with your values, the leadership, yeah. and now the community. Let's bring this home, Eric. What is your definition of a real leader? <laughs> so, you know, to me, a real leader is is someone who is very authentic and clear with their values and leads with intention. Um, so for me, it's, it's really about that idea of a servant leader and making sure that the people that I serve and that I lead are better off tomorrow than they are today. Uh, and, and we try to do that with values and we try to do that with authenticity. Well, Eric, appreciate your time coming on the Earlier's podcast. Go on and celebrate with your employees today. Congratulations. We're really excited for you all. I'm really glad we made this happen uh, after our first meeting uh, back in May. So again, uh, for, for Eric Ellison, I'm Kevin Hours asking you to go out there. Lead with intention, folks. And always keep it real. Thanks, Eric. Kevin, that was awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you, good people, for laying, laying on, laying on, listening, listening and hanging, listening. Hanging on to this episode of the Relators Podcast with Eric Ellison. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And folks, if you didn't know, all of these episodes are streamed live both on Crowdcast and on LinkedIn. So if you want to tune in, ask questions, um, be a part of our podcast community, hit the link in the description or email me at b at real-leaders.com and I'll make sure that you're in the know. Lastly, folks, if you're hearing my voice right now, I'd love it if you could please leave a review. If you haven't done so already, it would mean the world to me. I read every single one of them and I just want to make sure that we're doing you a service. So let us know what you think. Leave a review so we know how to improve the show. Last thing. Did I already say the last thing? This is the last thing. I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, what's like the real way to leave a review? How about just telling your friends? I am a firm believer of word of mouth, folks. Tell your friends about the Religious Podcast. Have them bring it up on their phone and hit that subscribe button so they too can keep it real. If you can do that for me, I'd love it. All right. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for tuning in and always keep it real.